Welcome back to Far From Perfect. I am your host, Kylie Larson, and today my guest is Dr. Joey Munoz. Joey is an expert in nutrition and exercise science, and currently he is a physique coach with Team BioLane and a scientific advisor for my favorite supplement line, Outwork Nutrition, no lie. So I think that is really cool. Um, since Joey is an expert in both training and nutrition, I didn't hold back from asking him a full gamut of questions. And <laughs> I want to have him back so I can ask him a few more. We start off by hearing about his history, how he got to where he is. And then we covered all kinds of things, including like the different training goals that we have. What is the difference between training for strength, training for hypertrophy, training for power and endurance? And what does that look like? How do you know if your training plan is effective? Should we be taking creatine? A lot of buzz around creatine. I know a lot of people are afraid to take creatine because they're afraid of holding on to water and gaining weight. And then also he answers the age, age long question or age old question of is protein damaging to your kidneys and why we should not be going by the RDA recommendation for protein and what we should be doing instead. And then finally, how to deal with um, changes in your physique mentally, whether it's when you're going through a reverse diet or maybe you're in actual bulking or building phase, like how do you deal with your body changing before your eyes? So a really fun episode with Dr. Joey. You guys look for him on Instagram. I've got links to all of his stuff plus Outwork Nutrition in the show notes, but on Instagram, he is Dr. Dr. Joey Munoz, and you can find links to Outwork Nutrition in the show notes, also in my profile and then, of course, don't forget, you guys, we have an August round of Lift to Get Lean and Revive, both starting, um, you know, as we start to wrap up the summer. Right now, I know you're out doing things, having fun. I hope you're finding so much balance and enjoyment in your summertime. But when you are ready to, you know, when the kids are back in school and you can focus more, we will be ready and waiting for you. So there's links to the wait list for that in the show notes as well. And as always, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple iTunes podcast. That is how I get the best guests to come talk to you. That is the best way that you can support us by sharing also this episode with your friends, with your family, post it out on your social media, tag me. I will share you. Thanks again for being here. Thank you for listening. And I can't wait to get started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, we are talking to my friend, Dr. Joey Munoz. And I actually started working with Joey eight weeks ago. Eight yeah. weeks ago, Joey. It's, it's been eight weeks already. That's, that's Dude, time flies. Time flies. And so Joey is an expert in, I feel you're an expert in nutrition and training. Before we dive into all the things I want to ask you, can you give us a little bit about your background? You have your PhD. This is, you are Dr. Joey. So <laughs> tell me what, like, tell me about that journey to be a doctor. Okay, cool. So do you want me to take you like back, back? Yeah, take me back. <laughs> take me way back. Okay. So when I was a kid, um, I was a horrible student in school, like really bad. So it's kind of surprising that I even have a doctoral degree because I honestly, like going to college was um, not anything that I had planned really. And then things kind of just fell into place and I'll, I'll get a little bit into that. But in terms of nutrition and exercise, I guess I was lucky because both of my parents were really into exercising regularly. Uh, I made a video about this not too long ago. But my dad would literally come home and just like do push-ups after work. And my dad's work is like manual work. Mm -hmm. um, so like he, he did construction and stuff like that. So it was always pretty much very active and doing stuff around the house. Um, so that really set a good example for exercise. My mom always exercised. Um, she did like aerobics and weight training. My mom did weight training back in the 90s when like weight training wasn't popular. Yeah. I honestly don't even know how she got into it because 
she doesn't know much about exercise. She just exercises. <laughs> um, but she was always into like eating pretty healthy, right? And like, um, I mean, she has like some, some types of ideas that aren't particularly correct, but she likes to eat clean and just like eat whole foods and stuff like that. Um, so that's how I first started getting into exercise. I always played sports. Like my mom forced me to be active pretty much. I always had to play outside as a little kid. And then as soon as I was able to do like group sports, I started doing sports. I used to swim competitively in middle school and high school. Uh, always played basketball for fun because I love basketball. So I was always a very active kid. However, when I was like 13, yeah, 12 and 13 years old, I got really overweight. Um, really? I was, yeah, very, like extremely. I actually growing up, I'll have to share a picture with you of when I was a kid because people are always like, oh, you probably have good genetics for building muscle and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, you should see pictures of when I was a young teenager. Um, had very like low musculature in my arms and legs. So I was very lanky and had a lot of like excess body fat in midsection. And it was because here's what I, what I was talking about before with my mom thinking about like eating healthy. She was just like, oh, fruit juice is healthy, right? Like it comes from fruits. So I used to drink a lot of fruit juice. Yeah. Um, and that's not the only factor, but overall I, I used to overeat a lot as a kid. I was also very active. So my mom was like, oh, if he's active, he can eat. So no big deal there, right? Anyways, I was pretty overweight. That's when I started swimming competitively, lost a bunch of weight. And then I'd say when I was 14 or 15 um, is when I wanted to start lifting weights. And my mom like had the idea that like lifting weights stemmed your growth and all that stuff. So she didn't want me lifting. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I started taking a weight training class. Yeah. Um, and all I would do was bicep curls for 45 minutes. And I remember, seriously, I would grab, and every time I would go into the weight training class, I would try to grab a heavier dumbbell. And so I was just like throwing my shoulder around and trying to curl this weight up. And that's when I started watching a lot of YouTube videos. That's, you know, when you and I started to work together, you like, how do you point these things out? I'm like, I used to watch hours of YouTube videos on how to do exercises. But uh, yeah, that's, that's really where my lifting journey began. And I remember like doing bicep curls for like a month. I'm like, why are my biceps not huge? Like it's been a month. <laughs> um, so yeah, then I went to college, went to Florida State in undergrad. My first like two years, I thought I was going to be a music major because in high school, I was also very active um, with music. I played the guitar and the saxophone, wanted to be like uh, a jazz major. I wanted to like play jazz music professionally. I was in the marching band at FSU. Oh my God, I, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's all right. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and then, well, one day I had a conversation with my mom and she was like, you can just keep music as a hobby. You're going to be kind of broke if you're just a musician. And I'm like, you're kind of right. So I didn't pursue music. Um, and I actually still have my instruments are like right behind me. Awesome. But um, I was like, what else do I like? I like nutrition. So let's go ahead and do that as a major. Actually, I was an exercise science major first, and I got kicked out of being an exercise science major because um, there was, this goes back to, to like me being a bad student. Like I've always been smart, but I haven't like applied myself. Um, and also when I went to college, it was like the first time in my life where I had freedom. Like my parent, my mom in particular was very strict. So I was going out a lot, not waking up early. And there was this one class that was once a week on Mondays at 8 a.m., um, no great it was just attendance based right it was just a seminar and like i was like well i'm not really learning much in this class so i wouldn't go to the class and if you missed it three weeks like you didn't pass the class and there was a rule at fsu that if you didn't pass the class twice you had to change your major so i didn't pass that class twice <laughs> I, just, I could not wake up before 8 a.m i was going to sleep at like four in the morning I oh my god Joey. um and so when they told me I had to switch my major, it was a real bummer for me. And I was like, well, what's the closest thing to exercise science? I'll be a nutrition major. Um, and went into the nutrition major. And like my, my first idea, I've always had like an entrepreneurial spirit. I was like, I'm going to do nutrition, learn about food. And because it was nutrition and food science, which is mm. slightly different. So I'm like, I'm going to learn some food science. And my goal is to develop some sort of food product after I'm out of school. And I didn't know that itself was a very hard endeavor, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm getting towards the end of undergrad. I'm enjoying all these classes I'm taking. I'm actually starting to do really, really well in school because I actually like classes, even though they're difficult. So I started taking like organic chemistry, biochemistry, all of these hard chemistry and biology classes, started doing really well. 
And then I remember, I actually remember the day I was in the library study, studying for an exam and like thinking like, what am I gonna do when I graduate? Because it was my senior year. Like, well, you can't do anything with an undergrad in nutrition. Like you really can't do much. So I'm gonna go to grad school. And that's how I decided to go to grad school. Thankfully, those last two years of undergrad, I did very, very well and applied myself. Um, if anybody has any questions about like, how did I apply myself? I don't know. <laughs> I just, I literally just, I just did. I knew I had to because graduation was coming up and if I didn't apply myself, like I couldn't do anything. So I just started doing better um, and I enjoyed the classes I was taking. Went to grad school, uh, luckily met a very nice professor um, who was my graduate vitamins and minerals professor. And when you're in grad school, um, if you're doing a master's or a PhD at a big research university, you have to do research as part of your thesis. I didn't know what the hell research was. Mm -hmm. um, I had no clue. And so I approached this professor and asked him if he would be my mentor, because you have to have a major professor, right? You have to work under a professor. And this professor was nice enough to allow me to work under him. And then the way I fell into, that was doing my master's. And then the way I fell into doing my PhD was because after a year of my master's, I had accrued like $25,000 in student loans. And I was like, damn, this is expensive. Like my parents aren't helping me. I'm just taking out loans for a master's. And then again, I was like, what am I going to do with a master's degree? Yeah. Uh, because I wasn't doing dietetics either, right? It was just like applied nutrition. Um, and so I spoke with my professor and he was like, well, if you do your PhD, uh, I can pay you to go to school and you'll receive a stipend. Like tuition will be paid for and you'll receive money on top of that to go to school. I didn't know that was the norm for all PhD programs across the country. Huh. Uh, to me, it sounded like an amazing deal. And I was like, all right, let's go, let's do it. Like that was, I had no, no questions about it. Like that was my deciding factor. Um, and like I said, I was really lucky that this professor, um, I guess, saw something in me and was willing to work with me. Um, and the rest is history. And I just did my PhD. After my PhD, I did a six-month postdoctoral fellowship with a professor at FSU who studied sports nutrition, which was more what I wanted to do because the lab I did my PhD in was clinical nutrition. And I was looking at like the benefits of particular nutritional interventions for chronic diseases, so like older populations, mm -hmm. which was fulfilling and enjoyable, but not what I wanted to do. Like I've always cared about performance and body composition and stuff like that way more. So that's why I did the postdoc with the other professor. And then I reached out to Lane because Lane, uh, I'm referring to Lane Norton for those of you guys who are listening, who's a huge figure in like um, bodybuilding and body composition world and all that stuff. He has his PhD in nutrition, but he's also an entrepreneur, has uh, several successful businesses. And I've been following him since I was in high school. So I reached out to him and I was like, hey man, finishing up my PhD, uh, can, can you pretty much be my mentor? I want my career to be exactly what your career is. I'm willing to do some work unpaid, essentially, was the email. And he was like, no, we'll pay you. Like, we have, we need some help around here. Um, and we can pay you for that work. So that's how I got uh, involved with working with Lane. And at that time, I was just doing some social media work, uh, reviewing research, writing articles for him. That turned into a coaching position. And then that has just been really fruitful and given me other uh positions with outward nutrition which is a supplement company and uh now we're here today doing this podcast <laughs> it's so cool i mean like you so you are doing what you had set out to do like you did come up with a food product kind of right with the supplements and everything yeah well with outwork my position is helping with product development so if they want to develop uh, a new product for some particular outcome like let's say we want to develop something to improve sleep like my job is to uh, search up the ingredients, look at the research, and provide recommendations for the formulation with dosage and all that stuff. Um, I also do a lot of uh, research review for them for doing social media work stuff too. That's pretty much what I do with them. So yeah, I'm doing product development indirectly, uh, or just really fell into this without even thinking I was going to fall into this. So what do you, do you have a preference between like working with people on nutrition or training? Do you have a favorite? I think they go both, both hand in hand. I, um, well, I think when people just focus on one or the other, they don't get the majority. Like people think it's 50 or 50 and I really don't think it's that way. I think like the second one exponentially improves the first one, like whichever one you focus on, right? Because if you like only focus on nutrition and don't exercise, like what's the, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not, not what's the point. That's a bad way of putting it. 
Um, but you're not getting 50% of the benefit. I think you really get the majority of the benefit when you put both together. Uh, with the nutrition stuff, I think there are some limitations to one-on-one -on -one online coaching in terms of working with absolute beginners mm -hmm. because it's hard to explain so much information with one-on-one -on -one coaching. So when I work with people such as yourself, for example, who are already experienced, I do think they get a really good benefit with one-on-one -on -one coaching. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I want to develop some online courses too, because there's so many people that come to me with absolutely no knowledge. It's like, listen, we're getting started with one-on-one -on -one coaching next week. And these are all the things, fundamental things that you should know, and you don't know them. So you would benefit much more from like reading a book or taking a course. And then if you're more serious, then work with a one-on-one -on -one coach. I think people who are absolute beginners don't benefit too much from working with an online coach if they don't have a base of information. I think the people that really benefit are those who already have some more experience, right? Same thing can be said for resistance training. Like I have people who want to hire me and they're like, I've never lifted a weight a day in my life. And I'm like, don't hire me. Go and hire a personal trainer who's first going to teach you how to do stuff with proper technique. Yep. Once you have a couple of years of doing that, then come to me and I can help you with some more advanced stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I really enjoy doing the one-on-one -on -one coaching, but it really depends on the person I'm working with. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, that's what, that's why I think that all of those educational materials are, are so important for people who don't really know anything. I agree. I mean, not to talk about my program, but that's why we don't do one-on-ones unless you have done the foundational program. There's just so much to learn. Like I can't, you know, if I were to check in with you, I check in with you once a week. How am I supposed to learn protein, carbs, and fats and how to track my macros and how to use whatever tracking app in yeah an email check-in once a week. Like that's just not going to happen. So we're just like, you know those things by week one, right? Because yeah. you should know those things like right when we get started. And mm -hmm. not to say that we don't provide some education because we do have some like learning resources, but it's just not enough, right? Yes. Like, and learning, like you don't have to just say it once. Like the person has to hear it over and over and over again. <laughs> so like it, it finally clicks. Let me tell you something that Joey has told me over and over and over again. It has to do with this full range of motion. And I hear it and I remember it and then I'll forget it sometimes <laughs> or I think I'm doing yeah. it. <laughs> it's like, we all need to hear these things over and over and over again. Yeah. It's the same thing with social media, right? You talk about the same things over and over. And like, I always think I'm like, people aren't really gonna find value in this because I've said this 10 times. And you post it and people are like, oh my God, thank you for saying this. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, sometimes you're saying the same thing with a slightly different angle or a slightly different viewpoint, which makes it click a little bit more for somebody. So I get that too. But yeah, like as a educator, I guess uh, what we do is be more repetitive and like say new information, right? Absolutely. I mean, because I always think people will hear it when they're ready to hear it. And maybe when we posted it on April 1st, they weren't ready. But when they see it on June 1st, they're like, oh. Yeah. I need to eat protein at breakfast. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about training. Um, everyone that listens, they know they need to be strength training. I would venture to guess they are already strength training, but they may not know the difference between like training for strength versus training for hypertrophy or training for any of the other options. So could you talk about the difference between training for strength and hypertrophy if there is a difference? Yeah, for sure. So I want to make a, a distinction. There are, there are different outcomes that you can train for performance outcomes. Those can be strength, that can be endurance, that can be power, which is explosiveness, right? Uh -huh. um, hypertrophy itself is not a performance-based outcome, right? Hypertrophy is more of something that occurs as a result of training hard over a long period of time. Right. So if you improve your performance, there's likely going to be some hypertrophy. Like people say that, for example, long distance running is not good for hypertrophy. That statement is partially true in the sense that long distance running is not optimal to grow muscle mass. Mm. But if you take somebody who is sedentary, who's never done anything and they start running, their legs will hypertrophy, they'll grow some muscle. Right. So hypertrophy is simply an adaptation that occurs as a result of you improving at whatever physical um, you know, exercise you're doing. Now, there are ways of training to optimize hypertrophy. So there are ways of training to, to grow more muscle versus others. Um, so when, when people say like, what's the difference between strength training versus hypertrophy? I don't really like that too much because if you strength train, you're going to get some hypertrophy. 
Now, training for maximal strength, like being a power lifter, for example, may not be the most conducive towards hypertrophy, but you're still going to grow some muscle. Like the top level power lifters who are super, super strong are also super, super jacked. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just no way around it. They're not as jacked as a bodybuilder because bodybuilders train specifically for hypertrophy. Now, when it comes to hypertrophy, the main things that matter are training within an appropriate rep range. And that rep range is really vast. So you could be training anywhere from like six to 30 repetitions. And you can see pretty similar results in hypertrophy if you're doing like the same number of sets and training with the same intensity or proximity to failure, right? Just how close are you getting to actually failing? So if you're training hard, the number of reps doesn't really matter for hypertrophy. Is okay. essentially it, right? Unless you're doing an insane amount of reps or a very, very low number of reps. And it's not that the very low number of reps isn't effective for hypertrophy. It's that with very low number of reps, you're just not doing that much volume, gotcha. right? And volume is one, it's probably the biggest factor that contributes to hypertrophy. So the more volume or the more total work that you're doing, the more stimulating that should be for muscle growth. So here's the thing, you could do a lot of volume doing sets of two or three reps, but it would require you doing like 10 or 15 sets. Yeah. Right? And then think about doing 10 or 15 sets on squats with a weight that's challenging for three reps. You're just gonna feel dead, right? So it's like, it's not realistic because although you could do that, you're just not gonna recover from that. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're doing the sets of six with like 195. Imagine doing 10 sets of three with like 215. <laughs> right? You could do the same amount of volume by doing 170 for sets of 10 to 12, just do three or four sets and you recover a lot better. But we could argue if we're not thinking about the recovery aspect, those are pretty equivalent for hypertrophy, yeah. right? Because the volume is pretty similar. So there's just like, what's realistic, what's not realistic. So training within the appropriate rep range for hypertrophy, you should be training near failure. You don't have to go to failure, but training two or three reps shy of failure on most exercises will give you a really good uh, return for your effort, essentially, right? So training proximity failure, then having appropriate training volume for muscle growth, it does seem like 10 sets per muscle group per week mm. is what's required on the lower end. And then there really doesn't seem to be a higher end as long as you can recover. Oh. Okay? So if you can perform 15 sets for your chest and you feel good, 15 sets is better than 10. If you can do 20, it's better than 15, etc. Most people probably can't recover from more than like 15 to 20 sets of hard training for a particular muscle group. But there are some differences. In general, younger people recover better, so younger people can handle more volume. Women seem to seem to recover better and handle more volume than men. Those may be some physiological differences. It may also be that women in general are just not as strong as men, so they're using less overall load, so it's less of a, of a stressor essentially on the body, so you can recover a little bit better. Because you'll notice that when you first start lifting, let's say 20 pounds is your max, and you put maximum effort into it, you're just going to recover fast because it's just 20 pounds. Whereas when you're lifting 200 pounds, the effort that you put into it is the same. It's still maximal effort, yeah. but it's a lot harder to recover from because the absolute load is, is more, right? So volume, the more you can handle, the better for hypertrophy. And then aside from that, it's really just being patient and making progress over time, right? As long as you are progressing, your muscle is growing. Mm -hmm. As long as you're taking into account those three major variables that I mentioned, your muscle is growing. There are some other important considerations too, in terms of like exercise selection and how you perform particular exercises. In general, for hypertrophy, there are no must-do exercises. Like whoever says you have to do a back squat to grow your legs is lying. Mm -hmm. You have to do some sort of squatting though. That doesn't even mean a free weight squat. That just means something where you're extending your hip and your knee at the same time, right? And you can argue you don't even have to do that. You just have to do some knee extension for your quads and some hip extension for your glutes. No squatting pattern is good for athleticism too, right? So you can do a leg press, you can do a squat on a Smith machine, you can do a hack squat. Anything where you are mimicking a squat will train that movement pattern, right? Um, so what you do have to do is target the muscle that you want to with a particular exercise, but there are no must-do exercises. Now, if you're a powerlifter, there's must-do exercises because you're competing on specific exercises. Um, another important thing, for hypertrophy specifically, which you were just talking about, is range of motion, mm -hmm. right? There's pretty good evidence that the stretch of a muscle under load is important for muscle growth, or it is one contributing factor for muscle growth. You can grow muscle without going through a full range of motion, but stretching the muscle is gonna have an independent effect on hypertrophy, whereas if you don't stretch the muscle, aka not going as deep as possible, mm -hmm. it's not gonna grow as much. 
Um, and then there's other variables like time and retention and stuff like that, which don't have an independent factor, a, a, an independent effect on muscle growth. Like you don't have to have really long time under tension to grow muscle. But I do think there are some practical benefits of time under tension. For example, if I do a set of 10 on squats, if I dive bomb the squat, like come down really fast, I can probably use another 20 or 30 pounds. If I just drop the weight a little bit and take two or three seconds on the way down, like the time under tension is significantly greater. The time under tension itself is not what's producing the hypertrophy, but the fact that I'm working really hard is. And when I have more control, I feel the muscles working better. Um, you can also argue it potentially reduces the risk of injury, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there are some benefits of like doing exercises slow and controlled through mm -hmm. a full range of motion for hypertrophy specifically. Um, so I guess that's really what's important for muscle growth, right? And then for strength, it, it can be a little bit more complicated because, for example, I guess we need to differentiate between strength, just general strength, like you want to get stronger at a pull-up, and then like maximal strength in terms of like how much weight can you lift on this particular exercise, mm -hmm. right? Like if somebody's powerlifting, let's talk about the squat, you probably can lift more with a low bar position versus high bar, high bar position. Like you can be super strong at a high bar squat, ass to grass, pause squats. You could be super strong doing that. But if you want to maximize how much weight you do for one rep, you could probably do better with a low bar squat, just squatting to 90 degrees and not pausing. Mm -hmm. Right. So exercise execution becomes an important component of training for maximal strength. If you compete in a strength sport where it's skill-based, right? So strength, that's another component. Strength is a skill. So how you do the exercise matters. Strength um, is a skill. I love that. I'm writing that down. <laughs> yeah, right? So it's funny, like for sports like basketball, people practice their free throws, right? And they'll shoot 100 free throws a day. And they don't think about that for like strength. Mm -hmm. Doing a squat is a skill and doing it for maximal strength is also a skill. So the way you do it in the way you practice it definitely matters so what do you think about um joel seedman <laughs> <laughs> i don't like him there's good and bad things he says like what he's saying about it being optimal for muscle growth is bullshit it's not true <laughs> um so joel seedman's someone who who preaches like stopping at 90 degrees pretty much for every exercise and the positive side is that like Hey, if somebody doesn't have the mobility to go all the way, like start somewhere, you know, if like 90 degrees is the most you can do, like start there yeah. and then try to improve it if you can, but just don't preach that that's superior because it's not, um, actually really funny. Do you know who Dr. Mike Isratel is? No. How do you spell his last name? Mike and then Isratel, I-S-R-A-E-T-E-L. Okay. Uh, he's a genius when it comes to exercise science. Cool. Uh, and him and Joel Steven had a debate on this. Um, and Mike Isertel is very like civil, like doesn't like conflict or anything like that, but he just asked some questions that made Joel look silly, essentially. He was like, oh, he was like, uh, so all these research studies that show that full range of motion is superior to partial range of motion, like, what do you think about those? And Joel Seaman's like, no, I do think full range of motion is better, but we need to define what we mean by full range of motion. He's like, I think 90 degrees is full range of motion. But when you look at the methods of these studies, like, that's not what they consider full range of motion. It's literally going through the full range of motion of the joint, right? So yeah. he's actually contradicting himself there. But uh, I would highly recommend that you check out Mike Israel. He's he's awesome. But uh, the Joel Seaman stuff, I think he's just trying to do something fancy for social media. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. much what it is. Yeah, I'm waiting for you to make me do a squat on a BOSU ball. Like, when's that going to happen, Joey? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when you, fire, when you fire me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that leads to a great question. Um, you know, this actually came up with a client the other day and she's like, I just feel like the workouts are just like a little easier this time around. And we're like, well, maybe you need to add some weight. So can you explain like, how does someone know if their training program is an effective training program? Cause I, you know, a lot of the people that are like my age and we grew up with, you know, this cardio background and going to circuit classes and hit classes and boot camps, we think effective is hard, sweaty. I don't want to do anything afterwards, but that's not necessarily the case. So I'd love to hear what you think equates to an effective training program. So effective for like muscle growth and strength? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very different than cardio, right? Like 
if you were trying to maximize hypertrophy, like, yeah, you'll be sweating and your heart rate's probably up, but it's not going to feel like you're about to throw up <laughs> and your lungs are going to literally come out of your mouth, right? Like it shouldn't feel that way. Um, if it does feel that way, then your training program is probably not the best for muscle growth because there's a difference between muscle growth and cardio too. Like the more you lean towards the cardio side, the less effective it is for muscle growth. And it's because your cardiovascular system is limiting your performance. Essentially, you want to train in a way that your cardiovascular system is not getting in the way of your performance. Mm -hmm. You want your muscle to fail before your lungs fail for muscle growth, right? So um, there are some general guidelines. An effective training program can look a million different ways. Mm -hmm. I think the main thing that you should focus on are those variables that I mentioned, right? So like doing an appropriate number of sets, minimum of 10 per muscle group, training within an appropriate rep range for muscle growth, again, six to 30. I think that 30 is a bit extreme, but I would say for the bigger compound movements, you probably like doing lower reps for like machine-based compound movements, probably somewhere in between like 12 to 15 or eight to 12. And then some isolation stuff, you can probably go a little bit higher than that. From a practical standpoint, you probably don't want to be doing six reps on a bicep curl or a lateral raise. It's just kind of difficult, right? So usually go on higher reps. So within the appropriate rep range, appropriate number of sets, um, appropriate intensity, which means the proximity to failure, appropriate exercise selection. Um, and again, we can go into each of those, like there's a lot of detail in each of those, right? Um, and then appropriate rest between sets is extremely important. Yes. For compound movements, if you want to maximize your strength and hypertrophy, you should rest at least three to five minutes. That sounds insane to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Like I have clients who are like, oh, I rested 30 seconds. I'm like, what? <laughs> and are you doing burpees during that rest time too or jumping uh, packs? Or? It's like, it's that, you know, when people are like, oh, I usually tell my clients like, hey, you probably want to rest around three minutes or just rest until like you feel pretty good for the next set. And I say that intuitively because I don't feel good for the next set until I've rested at least three minutes. Right? And some people are like, well, I feel good for the next set after a minute. If you're listening to this and that sounds like you, you're not training hard enough on that first set. If you really push yourself um, and your set is taking maybe like 45 seconds to a minute, like you need several minutes to recover. So if you, if you feel good after a minute, you're not training hard enough. That's the other thing, Patty, like people really need to learn how to train hard enough. That's a skill on its own. Yeah. Right? Like I, when I start with some clients, like they'll send me a video and they're like, oh, this was failing. I'm like, you had another 10 reps. Yeah. But that's a skill on its own, right? Um, but those are the main variables. And then to know whether or not your program is effective, are you making progress? It's yeah. literally that simple. Mm -hmm. Are those variables in place? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, that can look vastly different. You could have a bunch of different exercises. That can mean you train three, four, five, six days a week, um, right? You could have those 10 sets over three days, or you could have those 10 sets over six days, or you could have 20 sets over those six days. So like the number of days doesn't matter. How you split it up doesn't really matter. Um, I mean, there's small little ways of optimizing it, but it doesn't really matter all that much in the grand scheme of things. Like these are the big picture things you should focus on. And then it's like, Hey, if you're trying to gain muscle, you should be eating where your body weight's slowly going up. Right. Or if you're pretty new, just maintaining your body weight. And if you're doing that and you compare your performance this month compared to like last month or two months ago, if you're a little bit stronger, your program is effective. Mm -hmm. And if you feel like you aren't getting strong enough and you want to hop on a different program, don't <laughs> um, because everybody's always trying to search for the better program and that literally doesn't really exist like what matters is those big picture things right and if you gained if you got stronger by five pounds in a month or two that is huge progress trust me i'll train i'll literally train for six to nine months to add five pounds on a lift i've been doing this for close to like 10 years now, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe the first couple of years weren't the best, but pretty much 10 years now. Um, and those are really the only things like, are you making progress? Yes, that's effective. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, you know, everyone, we are online and I know a lot of people want to get online, but to me, there is such a place for this in-person training because how else can we know? I wouldn't know how hard I could go if I had not worked with someone in person. Yeah. So like, if you're listening to this and you're like, I kind of want to get in that online fitness space. So I'm sure people ask you about that. People ask me about it. I'm like, well, my advice is to start training as many people as you can in person first, <laughs> just to get that yeah. experience. I'm assuming you trained people in person. 
I did. I worked as a personal trainer for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I also learned that a lot of the stuff I thought, like when you work with real people, you have to do it differently, right? Like I worked with some like 70 year old woman. Like, well, my science says like push them, <laughs> but, you know, like and it just doesn't translate to real life. So I think uh, the real life experience is great. I know it's, it's weird though now because a lot of things are moving online, right? Mm-hmm. I think in general, like to be good at something, it just takes time. Like I have a lot of people message me too and they're like, I want to be a personal trainer. Like, where should I start? And I'm like, just take a course, take any course mm-hmm. and then just start doing it. And don't be harsh on yourself and just be open-minded to learning. Mm-hmm. And five years down the road, you'll be really good. Like it's just, it's just not going to happen quick, right? No, it's not going to happen quick. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that, I think the big thing is like being very open-minded and purposefully pursuing, continuing to educate yourself. Yep. Because I still learn shit to this day. Like everybody yeah. does. Mm-hmm. So excuse the language. No, <laughs> we're all about that. Stuff, right? <laughs> so continue to learn and just like take the things you learn and put them into practice. Yeah. And by continuously doing that process over and over, over several years, you'll be better and better. And eventually you'll be really good. Yep. Like when I was 15 or whatever, and I started learning about lifting and watching videos, never did I think I would be considered an expert in this field. Yeah. And now as Kylie said, I'm considered an expert on this, in this field. Right. So um, it just takes time. Yeah. So let's switch gears and talk a little bit about, let's put your uh, nutrition degree to work. Sure. Let's talk about creatine. What do we need to know about it? Should we be taking it? Fill sure. us in. Sure. So creatine is the most well-studied um, sports supplement, right? like right up there with protein. And I don't even consider protein a supplement because it's just food. Right. Um, and creatine is natural. It can be found in food, right? You find creatine in meat. However, you just don't fi- find it in doses high enough to have a really significant benefit for performance, right? Now, the benefits of creatine go beyond just performance. There seems to be, there's like newer areas of research showing that there seems to be cognitive benefits for creatine, not necessarily in young adults, but as you age specifically, there seems to be some benefits for creatine consumption. And then there also seems to be some cardiovascular benefits for creatine consumption in terms of improving blood flow and vascular function. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, it seems to improve the, the uh, tone of your blood vessels. And what I mean by that is like when blood flows, the blood vessels are supposed to be able to dilate and contract. And as you age, your blood vessels lose the ability to dilate. And that's why your blood pressure naturally increases as you get older because the blood vessel is, is more rigid essentially. And creatine seems to be a little bit helpful for that. That's like a newer area of research, but there's some preliminary research that seems to indicate that it's beneficial. Now let's talk about performance. What do you need to know? Um, I guess we'll, we'll knock out some basic questions off the bat. Do you need to do a loading phase? That's where you take about 20 grams for the first week to saturate the muscle. You can, but you don't have to, right? Normal dose is five grams a day. You can just take five grams a day for about a month and your muscle will be saturated with creatine. The loading phase, helps you saturate the muscle slightly quicker, but for some people it can cause GI distress. So uh, stomach uh, upset essentially, because it's a really high dose, 20 grams is a pretty high dose, right? So you don't have to do it, you can if you want to. Does creatine cause weight gain? Yes, but it's not fat, like you're not gaining fat, you're just storing some water in your muscle because creatine draws water into the muscle. So yes, you might gain a pound or two when you start taking creatine over that first month, don't be afraid, you haven't gained two pounds of fat, you simply might look a little bit more muscular because the muscle is fuller. So muscle is like 20 to 30% contractile tissue, so actual proteins, and then it's like 70% water, right? So the volume of the muscle can vary drastically depending on how much water is in there. So if you have a little more creatine, you store a little more water, you weigh a little bit more, not a big deal. Can you take creatine during fat loss phase? Does it inhibit fat loss? It does not inhibit fat loss. Again, it just increases body weight a little bit, but it doesn't negate energy balance. Mm-hmm. So if you're losing weight, you're losing weight. And I actually recommend people to take creatine when they're in a weight loss phase because they can train a little bit harder, mm-hmm. right? What are some other myths around protein that we can knock out really quick that you can think of? Oh my gosh. Okay. This is what I'll get, especially with my perimenopausal women. I mean, I just feel like this is so much protein. My doctor's worried about all this protein I'm eating all this protein being like 140, 150 grams, like is protein bad for your kidneys, Joey? 
So wait, are we going to talk about protein or creatine? Oh, I thought you said protein. No, you're good. You're good. We can get to protein too. I wanted to clear up a couple things with creatine. I was saying, are there any other myths off the top of your head with creatine that you can think oh, of? Oh, um, other myths I can think of. Um, well, that like, I think a lot of women don't think that it's for them. Like they don't need to take it. That's like something that bros do, just bros do. Yeah. In general, if you care about your performance in the gym, you should probably be taking creatine. You don't have to take it, but it definitely helps. Yeah. And the way it helps is because it pretty much allows you to get another rep or two towards the end of certain sets. So when you lift weights, we have this molecule known as ATP, which is what we call energy, wow. right? Um, and you have stored ATP in your muscles. You have a certain amount stored. And then you can also produce ATP as you exercise. When you do short, short duration, high intensity exercise, you use up the, the available ATP really quickly. And you can't really produce ATP at a rate to sustain high intensity exercise, right? Like if you go for an hour long jog, low intensity exercise, you are synthesizing ATP as you do the exercise. However, short duration, high intensity exercise, you simply can't synthesize ATP quick enough to keep up with the intensity of the exercise. Creatine essentially provides an additional mechanism by which you can recycle ATP quicker. So if you have a certain amount of ATP available, readily available for exercise, creatine just bumps that up by a random number, maybe another 10 to 20%, right? So you can perhaps get another rep at the end of your workout, which probably means you get a little bit stronger and a little bit more muscle. In one workout will make a difference? No, but over three, five, 10 years of training, it probably makes a difference in, in the outcomes. And 10 years is a long time, but- no, I, But I love that you said that. I, I love that you said that so much, you know, because people- they want to see results in six weeks. Six I started months. taking creatine a month ago and I don't see any differences. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why yeah, don't yeah. I look like you, Kylie? I'm like, well, I've been doing this for 10 years. Like, yeah. It takes time for sure. It takes time. So settle in, enjoy it. Sip your creatine. Is there a, does it matter when we take it? It does not matter when you take it. There, I, so with Outwork, we don't include it in our pre-workout because Again, it can cause some GI distress for some people. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, when you do with a pre-workout and there's other stuff in there, like caffeine causes GI distress for some people, like it can just add up, right? And like, if there is no benefit of taking a pre-workout, then why take a pre-workout? But you can take it anytime throughout the day. And hey, if it doesn't bother you pre-workout, you can add a pre-workout as well. Uh, but it doesn't matter when you take it. It doesn't matter if you have the five grams at once. You can have half in the morning, half in the afternoon. Some people, very few people are very sensitive to it in terms of GI discomfort. And breaking up that dose and eating it with food um, can help mitigate those side effects. Cool. Yeah, it, it's the, one of the things that I started taking just recently after you guys released it. And I mean, I haven't noticed any negatives. I don't know if I've noticed any positives, but I don't have any recovery issues. And yeah, um, yeah. but let's talk about that, that protein then. Yeah. You know, I'm eating all this protein and I love when people say all this protein, you know, cause 140 grams is not a high protein diet. Um, and my doctor's just concerned. What do, what do you say? What say you, Dr. Joey, when people say they're concerned about their kidneys? Okay. So medical doctors, um, although they're fantastic are not trained in nutrition. Okay. So when somebody goes to medical school, medical school, they pretty much get minimal nutritional education. I think they're actually changing legislation on that where they have to take a certain amount of credit hours of nutrition, which is awesome. But regardless, the reason why doctors uh, may recommend against a certain amount of protein is because of the RDA, right? And the RDA is the recommended daily allowance, which tells you it's there's pretty much an RDA for all of the nutrients telling you how much you should consume. Right? What people don't know about the RDA is that they're set to prevent deficiencies. Okay, so they're not for optimal health. They're simply to prevent deficiencies. And the RDA for protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. In kilogram, just take your body weight in pounds and divide it by 2.2. Okay, so it comes out to like 0.36 or something like that. 0.36 grams per pound of body weight, which is nothing. Like myself, I weigh 220 pounds. That means I would only consume 100 grams of protein. That's nothing. That's nothing. But it's enough to prevent me being protein deficient, having severe health effects. Although I would argue not having enough muscle mass itself is a, health, is a detrimental health effect, right? But nonetheless, that's where that recommendation comes from. And that's why some doctors are like, oh, like protein, whatever. 
Another reason is because of the kidneys, right? So, oh yeah, the kidneys, that's what it is. What's the role of our kidneys? Our kidneys ex- essentially take waste product from our blood and excrete it in urine, right? So the more waste, metabolic waste there is in your blood, the harder the kidneys have to work to filter that out. Um, protein is, or proteins are made of amino acids and amino acids all contain nitrogen. We remove nitrogen from our blood. We produce what's called urea, which is just a nitrogen-containing molecule. And then we excrete the urea in our urine. So the idea is that if you eat more protein, you are producing more urea, the kidneys work harder, and so you're causing kidney damage. Part of that is true. If you eat more protein, there is a greater filtration rate of the, on the kidneys. That means they're filtering more, right? There's more, there's more nitrogen. It makes sense. But when we look at people who have healthy kidneys and look at markers of kidney health, it, it just doesn't affect the kidneys negatively. Now, for some people who perhaps only have one kidney or have chronic kidney disease, they can benefit from a lower protein diet in terms of quality of life. But again, if you have healthy kidneys, there's nothing to worry about with protein. Nathan studies with protein intakes up to three grams per kilo, which is a really high amount. That would be, that would be me eating upwards of 300 grams of protein. And they don't show negative effects on kidney health. Now, I do think some people take it way too extreme. And I do think there are some downsides of eating way too much protein. And it's not the fact that protein is inherently dangerous. It's the fact that if you're eating so much protein, then you're just like not eating enough of other stuff in your diet, right? So everything is, should be balanced, but I think most people should eat a higher protein diet. So general recommendations, 0.8 grams per kilo to, to have no deficiencies. Perhaps between 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kilo for people who are sedentary and don't exercise, right? That will also just help help promote uh, having healthy amounts of muscle mass, right? 0.8 is to prevent deficiencies, but everybody should eat above 0.8. Yeah. Uh, probably between 1.4 or like 1.6 to 2.2 is beneficial for most people to build muscle who are into fitness, who are active. Mm-hmm. It's a range of so far, 0.8 prevent, prevent deficiencies, 1.2 to 1.4, if you don't do anything, and I'm guessing everybody who listens to this does exercise. So you all fall into like the 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilo. And then there are some special populations that may benefit from more than 2.2 grams. And again, this is, I say, I say may benefit because having that higher protein intake does take away from other nutrients you can eat, right? But those populations are older adults because older adults, um, essentially when we eat protein, it stimulates a certain amount of anabolism or muscle growth, right? And for you and I, who are still relatively young, if we have 30 or 40 grams, it will stimulate stimulate it maximally. The older you get, there is this thing called anabolic resistance. And essentially it just means you need more protein for the same anabolic effect, right? So older adults, if they want to maintain muscle mass, if they're still lifting weights, being active, they can probably benefit from a higher protein intake. Um, if you've experienced a big injury or surgery, Having really high protein intake is going to help you heal quicker. Think about if I have a huge gash in my arm, I have to build new tissue. That tissue is largely protein. So eating more protein will help. And the third uh, population would be somebody who's like severely calorically restricted, losing a lot of weight, perhaps for a competition, and they want to maintain as much muscle mass as possible. Maybe going above that 2.2 grams per kilo, which is one gram per pound, would be beneficial. So anecdotally, I was unloading the dishwasher, my least favorite thing to do, or right on par with folding the laundry. And I reached in to like grab the silverware down bottom and a knife, someone put a knife in sharp side up. And I like went in there and it like gashed my finger and my finger was like split open and it was a Sunday and I like still needed to go to the grocery store and do meal prep. So the only thing I saw was like, crap, it's like COVID times. I'm not going to sit in a waiting room to go get stitches when I have all this stuff to do on Sunday. And it's gushing, gushing, gushing. And I'm like, hey, Pat, my husband, I think I need to go to the emergency room. He's like, nah, we'll just like put some band-aids around it. And we'll zip it together. I swear because of the protein that I eat because of my diet, that gash healed so oh, quickly. It was like, Joe, you could see like the white stuff. It was not good. But I do believe because of the protein, yeah, I healed right up. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Because if you have some excess protein in your bloodstream, your body can use that to build the, the tissue that needs to heal. You know, it's funny that you said the dishwasher thing, and this is completely off topic, but uh, my own, like, 
okay, I have a few responsibilities around the house. My wife does the majority of things. My responsibilities are to take out the trash and I take care of the dishes. Those are my responsibilities. I, we, we usually clean everything by hand and we just got a dishwasher two days ago. And so it's funny that you say the dishwasher is like what you hate because I love dishwasher. Yeah, <laughs> Keep on loving it. You will have a happy wife forever. <laughs> yeah, well, the reason we got the dishwasher is because of the baby. Because Oh, yeah. yeah. Suck. <laughs> Your baby, because you have to wash those bottles, Joey. I mean, get ready, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I have one last yeah. question for you. Because I love talking about like mindset and things of that nature. And um, a while ago, you made a post about, you know, how to deal with negative self-image when bulking. I'll be straight up honest with you. You know, I don't work with a lot of women who want to bulk. They're just not at that place. That's a big pill to swallow. But that doesn't mean that when they have to do their reverse diet, they don't, you know, those thoughts come in. So... How do you deal with clients like that? What advice do you have? Do you deal with it as well? I assume we all do, but I don't want to assume too much about you. Yeah. Um, So here's first things first. Um, You don't have to gain a bunch of weight to be in good shape or build a lot of muscle. Like when I talk about intentionally bulking, it's like for people that really want to get like as jacked as possible, right? Like most people who don't exercise, if you start exercising, lifting some weights, you lose five or 10 pounds, you're going to look way better. And like, most people are just happy with that, right? Like, which is, which is fine. Now for people who want to intentionally build some more muscle, you've already been lifting for a couple of years. The only way to really do that is to like gain substantial amount of weight. And I made that post, even from like my own experience, I've always like stayed within the same 10 pounds, mm-hmm. right? Because and people might be thinking like 10, 10 pounds is a lot of weight, but also take into account, like I weigh over 200 pounds. Yeah. You're pounds. a tall dude. <laughs> yeah. So right now I'm weighing 225 and that's the most I've weighed since I was 18 when I really bulked. <laughs> but, you know, I usually, I usually stay around between like 205 to like 213 or so. And I felt like I was just spinning my wheels for years training and not really making substantial progress because I would get to like 213, 214. And I'm like, man, I feel uncomfortable at this weight. It's time to lose some weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm done with this weight gain thing. And this was the first time in years that I've really uh, committed to gaining a substantial amount of weight. And honestly, I'm 225 and I don't think I look any, like much different than I'm, when I'm like 215 in terms of body fat percentage because you're putting on muscle, right? So you have to understand like when you gain weight, sure you're gaining weight, but a, a portion of that is muscle mass. So the body composition or the ratio to muscle to fat probably isn't all that different, mm-hmm. right? So Yes, I used to beat myself up over being a little bit more overweight than I'm used to because I think that stems from being overweight as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, like coming from a Hispanic family, like Spanish culture is very different than American culture in the sense that like Spanish people be like, oh, you're a fat little kid. Like, and they just use it as like an endearing team to term, right? And like Spanish people call it as they see it, like straight up, right? So my family would call me fat and stuff like that, not out of like, not out of being mean, like almost out of like, like, a, I don't know, like trying to be sweet or something in some yeah, weird yeah. way, right? But it's, it's, it's a cultural yeah, thing. So exactly, exactly, exactly. And they're like, oh, Joey's the one that likes to eat a lot. Like we made a lot of food for Joey because he's coming. Like we got to make him all the food because he eats a lot. And like those things inherently affect the way a kid feels about themselves. And like, perhaps you don't notice it as a kid, but you definitely notice it as an adult. And so I would gain a little bit of weight. I would maybe put on a little bit of fat. Like I wouldn't see my abs anymore. And I'm like, oh, you got to lose weight. Yeah. So I never built much muscle and I would get so frustrated because my main goal was always to build a lot of muscle. So I was like, F it, I'm going to gain some weight. And so I did, and I'm happy I did because I don't feel that different about it. But in terms of mindset, like some of the things that would really affect me before was my physical appearance. That was like the only thing I focused on Mm -hmm. Um, rather than focusing on all the positive benefits that come with weight gain, right? Like aside from the fact that you're getting stronger, which is awesome, uh, you feel better in terms of performance in the gym. Um, and now let me preface this by saying like, I'm not saying you have to be overweight. Like you don't right. have to have excess amounts of body fat. No. You can put on a little body fat, right? Like if you're lean, you can afford to put on a little body fat, put on maybe five to 10% of your total body weight on top of what you currently are. Um, you can focus on the performance things, like your performance is increasing, that's awesome. And then aside from that, I just noticed like how much more I can just enjoy my life. That was the big one for me. Yeah. Um, maybe it's also like, 
I'm married now. I mean, I was young. I'm not trying to go out and meet people and like look the best I can look or anything like that. Although I think like now my perception of what looks best has also shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a lot more comfortable. I, th- I think that's a, another aspect, right? Like young people just like, don't feel that comfortable in their own skin yet. I think when you're probably like, later in your 20s, 30s, you start feeling a lot more comfortable. At least that's my personal experience. And I was like, hey, I'm not super strict with what I eat and I'm maintaining a pretty good body composition. It's also because I have more muscle and I burn more calories. And like three or four times a week, like my wife and I were just like, let's just go get ice cream. And I was eating like a huge thing of ice cream. And like, let's just go eat this. Like, who cares? It's not that big of a deal. And it's not that I was being a pig or a slob because usually if I eat something like that, like the next day I might walk a little bit more or like just be a little bit more active or watch my food choices a little bit more. Uh, but I just like don't have to be strict, which is so nice, right? So like my whole thought is like, is being like ripped and having veins on my shoulders and a six pack worth those sacrifices? Not at this point. Like at some point in my life, maybe I guess it was, right? Because I was doing it for a reason. I thought it was worth it. Yeah. But you have to understand, like, this is one thing that I think people must understand. It's like having a particular body type, and we're talking about here, like, the ideal body type of being super ripped and in really good shape requires a certain degree of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. There's no way around it. Unless you have incredible genetics, which some people do. Mm-hmm. That's not you. It requires a certain level of sacrifice. And that level of sacrifice sometimes just doesn't align with your lifestyle and what you're willing to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. If you're unwilling to sacrifice going out to restaurants two or three times a week, enjoying food with family, if you're unwilling to sacrifice, um, perhaps like you don't want to do that much cardio or like, you know, you don't want to be as strict, then hey, you have to understand like that body type is not for you. Right. And that sounds a little bit harsh, but I think also people need to change the mindset of like, that's the ideal body type. Yes. That's not the ideal body type. Like, just focus on being the best you can be given your circumstances. I'm actually making a post about that later today. Oh, good. Um, but literally just focus on trying to, to be the best you can given your circumstances. And if your circumstances don't align with a particular body type, then you have to be okay with not chasing that body type. Right. And, um, and it's okay. It's okay to say yeah, I'm yeah. not willing to sacrifice that. Like, yeah. I don't want to give up Saturday night pizza night with my family. I think there's also power in saying no. I, we call yeah. it like the cost of getting lean. Like, what are you willing to sacrifice? And if you're not willing to, I think that's totally fine. And, and also, one, I think, okay. I would say one really good thing you said is like the cost of being lean, right? Mm-hmm. When people hear the word lean, they're, they're thinking like ridiculously lean, yeah. right? I'm like right now, 16, 17% body fat. I consider myself lean. And this is very easy to sustain with very low rigidity. Again, I think it requires years of building muscle, but like once you've done that, it's not hard to stay at a normal body fat percentage. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be 30% body fat. That's obviously unhealthy, but you don't have to be nine, 10% body fat because you can be there requires a a hell of a lot more sacrifice than just being normal body fat percentage. I like once you have been super lean, I think a lot of people who have never been super lean, they may not understand. Like it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Oh my God. Kylie, once I got down to like 197 at my height, and this was after a couple of years of lifting, and I was in really good shape, like uh-huh. full on six pack, really good shape. And sometimes I look at those pictures, I'm like, man, I miss being that shape. But I remember like literally being hungry all day. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That sucks, right? Like, all day, and I was in school at the time, I'm just thinking like, oh, food, I'm hungry. Yeah. And I just think you have to suppress hunger 24-7. Is yeah. that worth it? No. It's all you can <laughs> think about. Like, yeah, totally. Not lifestyle friendly. Oh, good. Oh, Joey, I swear I could talk to you for a whole other hour, but I want to be mindful of your time because I know you got to make Instagram posts. Speaking of, <laughs> where can we find you yeah. on social media? How do we work with you? What are our options? Yeah, awesome. So if you guys want to find me on social media, I post a lot of educational material on these topics that we've been talking about. It's just at Dr. Joey Munoz, just D-R dot Joey Munoz is N as a mother, U-N-O-Z. Um, and you guys can find me on Kylie's page. And then if you guys are interested in um, hiring me as a coach, just shoot me an email at joseph at biolane.com. That's B-I-O-L-A-Y-N-E. My email is in my bio on Instagram, so you guys can find me there as well. Awesome. Well, I just have to say, like, thanks for all that you put out. I love how you deliver your message because 
in this space that is so loud um, and crowded, you to me, you get through because of the way that you deliver content in a way that I can understand it and digest it. And I like, I like you, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, no, I I appreciate that. So without ego, yeah, yeah. without a bunch of, I I really appreciate that you said that because I was thinking the other day, like, um, I listen to a bunch of podcasts, right? And sometimes I listen to some more than others. And the ones that I listen to more are not because the information is better. I just like the people. And sometimes like, honestly, one of the ones that I listen to a lot they talk a lot of shit about nutrition. It's like not good information, but I also listen to it just to hear like what people think, right? Because yes. being a scientist and having a PhD, I'm so far removed from what the general public thinks about some stuff that I listen to these things just to have an idea of what people are thinking. Yeah. But I also just genuinely really like the people. Yeah. So yes, with my videos, I try to come off as relatable the best I can. Um, so I really appreciate that comment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day. And I can't wait to talk to you again. Thanks. Thank you, Kylie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you again for tuning into the show. I hope you have a fantastic day. And until next time, don't worry about being perfect. Allow yourself to be good enough. Can't wait to talk to you again.